0: This is Christine Maxfield and you're listening to When in Rome from Compass Magazine. If you're a huge outdoor buff like I am, then my next guest is for you. Peter Potterfield has spent the past several decades climbing some of the most treacherous peaks and mountain regions in the world and has spent countless hours exploring the remotest backcountry that man has never seen before. Then, in the 90s, Peter took a huge fall that nearly cost him his life, which he writes about eloquently in his highly acclaimed book, In the Zone, Epic Survival Stories from the Mountaineering World. Listen to his harrowing tale, because it will definitely leave you on the edge of your seat like it did for me. Peter, I'm so excited to be sitting down with you because I know you've been on so many adventures that I'm excited to talk to you about. I also know that people travel for different reasons. And so for you, you love to travel for the wilderness aspect and the adventure. Is that correct?
1: That's right. My driving force is actually to see the most beautiful places on the planet. And to do that, you've really got to hit the trail. Exactly. You're not going to see it from the car or the bus. I enjoy wilderness travel. I enjoy backcountry travel. I don't mind sleeping in tents and carrying all my own gear. So it works hmm. hand in hand.
0: So what got you into this? What, Why the love of the outdoors?
1: You know, I can't really answer that, except that when I started doing it as a kid that grew up in Florida, I was a beach kid, surfer, hung out on the beach, and I went to school in Virginia where there were mountains, or at least wet passes for mountains back right. east. and I started hiking in the mountains and overnighting in the mountains and sort of going under my own steam and I enjoyed it I was really dumb in the early days took all the wrong gear carried too much weight but the more I did it the more I improved and the Mm -hmm. more I did it the more I loved it I knew that I was addicted
0: I had to do Mm -hmm. and that was what age college that was college yeah So tell me how this happened. You're currently the editor of greatoutdoors.com. You are also the editor-in-chief of the award-winning Pacific Northwest magazine for more than a decade. This love of the outdoors, how did you then transfer that into outdoors adventure journalism?
1: It never began as an attempt to be an outdoor journalist. Mm -hmm. I was a journalist by trade, just like (laughs) some people are plumbers, and I worked for newspapers in Atlanta and New Mexico and in Seattle in magazines. And on the weekend, I would go climbing. And that was my recreation. Some people play golf, I play climbing, and that involves wilderness travel because particularly in the Cascades, you have to walk to the mountain. As I was climbing and hiking in the mountains, publications like Outside Mm -hmm. asked me to write for them. And so it was a gradual transition from being a journalist, sort of a general interest journalist to an adventure journalist. Mm -hmm. It just sort of evolved over time, basically kicked off by when I had a bad accident, I wrote a well-received book called In the Zone, Mm -hmm. and from that point on, I've written strictly about outdoor adventure.
0: Ever since that book came out.
1: That's right, because it was possible. The book was well-received, I think it's number 22 on the outside Mm -hmm. canon or something like that, and so other outdoor venues have approached me to write about life in the wilderness and what it's like and it used to be extreme outdoor adventure and now it's more moderate outdoor adventure
0: and why is that because of the accident
1: because of the accident and because as my profession turned to writing about adventure travel exclusively it became important for me to write about adventure in a way that appealed to a wide audience yeah instead of a narrow extreme audience, and I was happy to do it.
0: Yeah. Well, now let's talk about your book, In the Zone, because it was critically acclaimed, wonderful book. I have it here. You speak about three climbers, including yourself, and the full title is In the Zone, Epic Survival Stories from the Mountaineering World. And they are epic. I mean, you talk about, in particular, Scott Fisher, you have a section about how he passed away on Everest. You got word about that when this book was going to press. So, I mean, let's talk about these epic survival stories and what is the draw for these extreme challenges? Is it conquering the fear and conquering the physical aspects of of these hikes? That's the intrigue. I don't think
1: conquer enters into it. No? No, I think that those of us who love to do it have no illusions about who's going to conquer who when you're in the wilderness. Good point. Nature always wins. Yeah. Jackie Stewart, this famous Scottish race driver, once said, though, driving is when I'm alive, everything else I'm just sort of hanging around waiting. And a lot of us view wilderness travel that way, that when you're out there, you breathe free. You are free. Yeah. How wonderful to just wander among the most beautiful peaks and landscapes in the world under your own steam, stop when you want, move when you want, walk when you want. Mm-hmm. It's enriching experience and it's one that you can't really appreciate unless you've done it. Some people I think would rather go to a ball game or play golf.
0: Yeah.
1: Those of us who have the bad chromosome, we <laughs> need to get out in the wilderness. And I travel in those circles and I see other people who suffer from the same addiction that I do and it never fades, it Mm -hmm. just keeps on going. I'm doing the most interesting back country travel now I've done in my whole life, and I expect to for the next 10 or 20 years.
0: How has it changed for you?
1: It's changed for a couple of reasons. Practically, I'm a better known journalist, I get uh-huh. better assignments. Yeah. I have a little more resources to get to more remote places, mm-hmm. to do things like <laughs> retracing Ernest Shackleton's route yeah. down in South Georgia Island, a wonderful adventure, to go to Tasmania, hmm. to go to the ends of the earth to find the most interesting backcountry routes. And I, I feel a sense of urgency about it because as big as the world is, there are interests that would encroach upon the wilderness that would exploit it. Mm -hmm. be it oil exploration or mining or minerals or other things, the north slope of Alaska is a great example, Mm -hmm. where there is a real heavy lobby that wants to expand the oil field into what is one of the most wonderful places in the world, which is the wildlife refuge there on the north slope. So the urgency, I feel, is to see these places now before they're bespoiled.
0: So where would you suggest people go, since there is that sense of urgency?
1: Go everywhere. Yeah. (laughs) I would. Like One of my favorite places is Cedar Mesa in southern Utah. Yeah. Uh And Conoco wants to drill for natural gas. Uh And then it would be, of all the places in the world to drill for natural gas, why pick? one of the most unique landscapes on the planet. It's ironic that tourists from France and other parts of the world 12,000 miles away from Utah appreciate the landscape more than the Utah delegation does. Mm -hmm. So I work hard to protect wilderness, but in my own self-interest, I just try to go everywhere I want to see quickly before they can get to it.
0: So if people want to become a little bit more involved Are there any organizations you would
1: suggest? Sure, just any conservation organization. And one of the reasons I I don't feel bad about writing guidebooks, Uh when I write books like Classic Heights of the World, I weigh whether or not I'm going to cause impacts in an area that might in some way damage it, Mm -hmm. and I won't write about it if I think that's the case. Usually the places I write about are either well-protected by wilderness backcountry rules, Mm -hmm. Or they're just so remote that there's no way there's going to be too much traffic. Yeah. So I I don't feel bad about it. And by sending people into these wild places, people grow to love those places, and then they work to Mm -hmm. save them. Mm -hmm. Stewardship is the word that you hear a lot. So it doesn't matter whether we're talking about Patagonia or whether we're talking about a place in New York State. If you hike there, you're going to look after it because you grow to love it. And that's what we need. And as long as there are people who care about the landscape, there are people who are going to work to save it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the most effective way to do
0: it. So there are some gems that you would never tell us about.
1: True, (laughs) there are. Ah,
0: Okay, so let's go back to In the Zone and the spill that you took. That was at Chimney Rock?
1: That's correct, it's a mountain in the Alpine Lakes wilderness area in the central cascades of washington state
0: okay and this was in the 90s is that right? All right that's great okay so what happened
1: i took a mountaineering fall and it's something i never thought i would do i'd climb for 20 years other people got hurt climbing mountains i didn't mm-hmm. i was careful i thought that i would spend the rest of my life as a climber who never fell it just goes to show how arrogance can be your downfall and it was an awful experience a hold a piece of rock on the face peeled off and i just went sailing into space somehow the belay failed kind of what you count on to keep you from falling all the way there's no way of knowing but it doesn't matter because it was my fault i was there i did it i fell falling off a mountain is really awful at first i just couldn't believe it and then i began to hit the rock and tumble as i fell and then as the rope went taut when i hit the end of the rope i landed on this little ledge and what saved me was this really great helmet from the UK. It's called an Ultimate Helmet. They don't even make them anymore. It's real heavy. But when I was first climbing, uh, one of my mentors made me buy mm-hmm. this helmet. And that helmet saved my life. Wow. Because even though a lot of bones were broken, I had bones sticking out of me. My head was not broken. Huh. And otherwise, it would have been curtains. So I spent a couple of days on a ledge the size of a cafeteria tray.
0: A couple of days.
1: Yes. With bone sticking out of me. Wow. Well, one of the greatest high-angle mountaineering rescues of all time happened around me, unbeknownst to me. Yeah. I could only see headlamps at night. I could see the occasional helicopter. So it was a great thing. And I wrote In the Zone to commemorate that, to let people know what my experience was, but also to tell the story of the rescuers, yeah. which is really the better story, including the helicopter pilot.
0: Including the helicopter pilot's how? plucking you off that ledge.
1: They did. They couldn't. They, they could not. They, they couldn't. They had to put climbers on top of the mountain, and they uh, lowered me down to a glacier
0: huh.
1: in several stages. But this guy, Malcolm Wiggins, a U.S. Army helicopter pilot, was flying above the operational ceiling of the helicopter at night in a windy conditions, and the rescue guys. I could hear him talking on the radio. See, and if you don't get this guy off, he's dead. Yeah. And so the the You could hear in. them
0: saying that. Oh, yeah,
1: sure. So, thanks, guys. <laughs> very good. I then, I was loaded up with morphine, so it was great. But this That, is that their, you had on you? No, the medics. They gave, oh, okay. Uh, guy named Steve May, the guy, one of the guys who was lower down to me, mm-hmm. started shooting me up. He, mm-hmm. he wrote a big M on my forehead so that when I got to the trauma center.
0: Well, so there you are a couple of days. How did you not pass out? How did you keep it together?
1: I think I did pass out a did couple you? of times. I tried to get protection in, if you know what that is. It's like a piton or a chalk. It's, it's what climbers use. You put a piece of metal in a crack and it jams, and then you clip yourself to it. Mm-hmm. I wasn't able to get any effective protection in, uh, so I had to stay awake. Wow. Because if I went to sleep, I'd just fall off that little ledge. It was an ordeal. It truly was an ordeal. But I was motivated. This was before cell phones were common. And I think that if I could have called my family and and my girlfriend and told them that, hey, I'm dying, sorry, I love you, I might. I might. Dying was easy at that point, living was hard, but I was motivated to get back. And I have a line in the book where I think that survival is a decision as (laughs) much as anything else. And I've heard that from other people who have been in dire straits.
0: Yeah. Well, there's another line from your book. This might be the one you're talking about. It comes down to will and attitude. Played out at the ends of one's physical strength, some people make it, some don't. But the ones who do have interesting stories to tell.
1: And that's what I hoped in the zone is. Yeah. Not only my story of desperate struggle to survive, but Colby's. Yes. And Scott's. Yes. And they were generous enough to share that. That's an intimate detail, Mm -hmm. and not everybody is willing to do that. The story of Colby Coombs in Alaska is the equal to any and Scott Fisher and Ed Visters on K2 yep. have a story like no other. So I think that In the Zone holds up as a collection mm-hmm. of survival chronicles told honestly and without any false drama. When I wrote the book, I cranked it back. It's understated, if anything. Mm-hmm. Understated to the extreme because there's no reason to overstate it. Yeah. What's going on is the essence of life and death. And so... It's important to get to the truth, not to interject any sort of false sense of drama.
0: Well, so now how does somebody get past a crazy spill like that, climb again? I mean, that was 20 years ago, and you're still out there doing your adventures. How do you get past that?
1: I think it's an evolution in the sense that after you spend a semester in one of the best trauma centers in America, you think, well, my climbing days are over. Mm -hmm. As you heal and rehabilitate and try and get your strength back and you grieve for your body you grieve for the old body you have i'm held together with stainless steel you wouldn't know huh. but i am and then you start giving back i became uh, president of the foundation of the trauma center where i was saved mm-hmm. and you start doing things like that but then if you're addicted like i am the desire to get back out there surfaces hmm. you know while well, i'm a little stronger now i'm a little healthier now And I remember a good friend of mine, a co-author, I asked him if he'd go climbing with me to a place where we used to just go on a lark.
0: Yeah.
1: A lark. To do this climb that we had done a dozen times. It was just fun. But to me that day, it was brooding and dark and scary. Hmm. And I wanted to run away.
0: Yeah.
1: But I had to do it. Get back on the horse. Get back on the horse. You got to do it or you're psychologically damaged. And even though I was terrified, I pulled it off with the quiet confidence of my good friend yeah. to see me through it. Mm-hmm. And then I was back in the game. I did it. So now I enjoy it more than ever.
0: And how long did it take you to get out there with your friend? From the You know, Iceland? I would
1: say that the healing process is still going on, but it was a good three years before I felt physically strong enough to take that on. It would be dumb To do any climbing or to do any wilderness travel if you're not physically up to it. Mm -hmm. That's the way people get into trouble. Yeah. So I wasn't going to do something stupid like that. Yeah. It took a while.
0: So if somebody wants to start getting more into these adventures, how do they do that? They're just completely, you know, novice. Because you started when you were older. You were in your 20s. So how did you... Yeah, really...
1: Most people start in their teens, and that's a good time to do it because Mm -hmm. they're fearless. Anybody who wants to spend any time, whether it's climbing or traveling through the backcountry, and they're two different things. If climbing is what you feel the urge to do, then indoor gyms are a good way to train and Mm -hmm. learn. If alpine climbing, the sort of climbing that I enjoy where you walk into the wilderness and climb an objective that's deep Mm -hmm. in the wilderness to me is more enriching. Then you just start slow and gather skills just like you would do anything else. You go overnight and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to be cold and you're going to be wet sometimes and you say, wow, you know, next time I'm going to take this or next time I'm going to do it this way Mm -hmm. or next time I'm going to do it that way. You do that for a few years and you start to gain practical knowledge that enables you to travel safely yeah through the backcountry and those are the skills that you need you know you take a couple of falls Mm -hmm. or you look down and find that your knots come untied it makes you more careful you learn and it's a learning curve like any other pursuit whether it be Mm -hmm. making quilts or canoeing yeah you learn skills Uh,
0: you said that your accident happened 20 years after you started climbing when you start to get a little comfortable, yeah. the whole overconfident
1: thing, would over, be a better one.
0: Overconfident. Yeah. How How do people avoid that? That seems so likely.
1: I don't know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. But what's educational about the experience is that it takes something like that to remind you that you've got to be yeah. careful. Way better to just learn that intellectually, mm-hmm. although the lesson may not take as well. Yeah until you just get slapped upside the head. I'm lucky that I survived it. A lot of people don't. I started taking notes the day the Army helicopter delivered me to the trauma center because I didn't want it to dissipate. Mm -hmm. I wanted the raw emotion of the days I'd spent on the ledge to be realized, to be able to be articulated. It's a shame that you've got to suffer so much to learn the lesson. And I encourage people to just learn the lesson. The upside is that when you come that close to death, that you lose your fear of death. When death becomes easier than staying alive, yeah. you're there. You know, you're know, you looking at the Grim Reaper. I'm, I'm not over-dramatizing. It's just like you're on the ledge, and it's just like, well, I think I'll just die, or I'm going to just hang on here as long as I can for whatever motivations you have.
0: How has that changed you today?
1: It's uh, definitely changing. It. Yeah? I don't want to die. But I'm not afraid of it anymore because I've been there. Mm-hmm. I've just been right at the threshold of it. It makes me love life even more. And it's why I'm traveling and doing more backcountry travel now than I've ever done in my life.
0: Well, it's an incredible gift. I mean, you worked really hard to get that lesson.
1: but <laughs> Lucky. Yeah. Lucky. And some people aren't lucky. Yeah. It's, you know, another dead climber. We read about him every day. Yeah. And I wasn't the guy that died. Yeah. So
0: what's next for you? What is the peak that still needs to be climbed for you?
1: Well, for me, it's more like going to remote and beautiful places.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You don't know what's going to work for you next until you go there. Yeah. No stone unturned is my motto. So I've recently been to Tasmania, where I found some of the most interesting backcountry routes I've ever seen along the Tasman Peninsula. I recently went to Arctic Sweden and walked 100 miles through the most incredible wilderness, you can drink the water out of any stream, you can camp mm. wherever you want, you can do what you want. You will not see a soul. That
0: one was solo, right? Is that the one that you yes,
1: did? Yes, it was. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, I, and, you know, and, and solo is good. Solo is different than not solo. My preference is to go with a good friend, a companion who also is a competent backcountry traveler. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of photographers I work with who are my equal in any regard, and when we travel through a remote place and we stop for a while, they go do their thing, I go do my thing, and it's a nice partnership. Mm -hmm. If you go by yourself, it's a little more intense, your internal dialogue kicks up a little bit, you've got to be careful because there's no rescue, you have to pay a little more attention, and that's what makes it more intense. But places like Arctic Sweden are the reason why you have to go look. Uh, lately, I've been doing a lot of backcountry travel in the Middle East. Now, who would have thought that the Middle East would offer the kinds of challenges that would be interesting? But Jordan, we did a 50-mile journey through the deserts and the mountains to enter Petra, yeah. the back way.
0: Oh, did you? Because I was in the Wadi Rum volunteering. I didn't do... I know where you're talking about. It's worth it? I need to it's go worth back it. to Jordan.
1: I, I think, well, to enter Petra through Eldir, the treasury, yeah. from the highest point and then drop into it
0: yeah
1: that way it has bigger impact than arriving in a parking lot full of idling tour buses yeah and a a full-on tourist scene i'm not knocking the tourist scene anybody in their right mind would want to see petra or the taj mahal or Mm -hmm. the pyramids Mm -hmm. go for it i'm all for that but i'd rather do it in a quieter way yeah and israel There's this place called Wadi Zayalem, which is not far from Masada. Mm -hmm. Beautiful place, and you can see desert ibex. One of the last places on Earth where you could see desert ibex. So the important thing is to never stop looking around. I recently did a hike in Newfoundland called the Long Range Traverse. There's no trail. An incredible backcountry outing, very satisfying. Nobody's there. You camp in places where no human being has ever been it makes travel to newfoundland worthwhile huh you got to keep looking and what haunts me now are the places that i haven't been or the places that i don't know about luckily when i give flight shows and lectures around the country people come up to me and say me peter funny. you know you yeah. do like this place you should go yeah
0: so your list is getting bigger
1: yeah it is it is and it's it's just fun to go yeah
0: Well, I really love your books. Um, I have your latest one, which is, it was the Classic Hikes.
1: Classic Hikes of North America, Mm -hmm. where my publisher in New York asked me to focus on hikes closer to home, Mm -hmm. twist my arm, you know, go to Utah, go to Alaska. Yeah. I had hoped to include some hikes in Mexico, some really elegant treks in Mexico, most of the good ones are in Sinaloa State, and I didn't feel good about sending my readers to a place that's so unpredictable right mm-hmm. now. I'm not scared yeah. off by politics. I sent people to K2 in Pakistan yeah, right after 9-11 because I knew that it wasn't an unreasonable risk. Mm-hmm. I think Mexico right now, given what's going on down there, a couple years, it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. All right.
0: I'm hopeful. Yeah. All right, are you ready for your Traveler's 10 questions? Yeah, right.
1: Do you do this to everybody? (laughs) Yeah, I
0: do. (laughs) You're already (laughs) blushing about it. All right. Okay,
1: Karen.
0: All right. What book, travel or otherwise, makes you want to pack your bags and hop on a plane? I know there was one book that got you really going on hiking and outdoors, but...
1: What's that?
0: Oh, wasn't it Annapurna? Uh,
1: Yeah. See, I knew. I did my research. Do I have to pick just one?
0: Tell me as many as you want.
1: What I do is more adventure than travel, I think, but there's a couple of books that are really great. Mm-hmm. You mentioned one, Annapurna by Morris Herzog, a really, really wonderful story of a tragic climb in a lot of ways, but it's the essence of adventure. A great book was called In Patagonia.
0: Yeah. Um, Bruce Chatwin?
1: Bruce Chatwin. And it's, it's also the essence of adventure, well told. That's really important. Two more books that I think really inspire me, although I read voraciously, I read all the time. Mm -hmm. You can't read enough. There's a book called Savage Arena by Joe Tasker, which may be the best mountaineering book on the planet ever. Joe died, disappeared, actually, on Mount Everest just a few months after dropping off his manuscript with the publisher. Savage Arena is a wonderful book. Finally, I'll mention a book by Redmond O'Hanlon called in trouble again. Yeah. The guy is hilarious. Yeah. Another well-told story.
0: I love all of his stuff. He's great.
1: He's really, he's exceptional.
0: Yeah. What destination do you consider a best-kept secret? I know you won't tell me the super gems that I know you know about.
1: The two that I would offer up would be the island state of Australia, Mm -hmm. Tasmania. It's unique. And I would say northern reaches, the Arctic reaches of Scandinavia are seldom visited, wonderful places.
0: Any of the three, the Norway, Finland, Sweden?
1: um... I'm I'm more familiar with Sweden and Uh Norway. Okay. Funny you should mention, I'm off to Finland to find out what's there. You are? Yes. When? Friday. I'll go to Helsinki, spend some time in Finland, and then go to Estonia and to see.
0: Wow, all right, so we'll have to report back. Yeah. (laughs) What site should be seen at least once in a lifetime and why?
1: highest mountain on earth because it's there it's, have you ever
0: wanted to climb everest you know
1: i haven't i've spent so much time covering on everest i probably yeah. spent more time at base camp than most people
0: yeah
1: and i used to want to climb it as a younger guy but a lot of my friends Scott fisher is yeah. a frozen corpse on mount everest and He's many still there still there well you can't bring people mm-hmm. down okay it's all you can do to survive yeah And I'm not going to be judgmental about what's happening on Mount Everest, but in the last 15 years, the experience of being on Mount Everest has changed dramatically from one of elemental personal struggle to one of crowd control. Yeah. And it's okay. The mountains are for everybody. And a lot of climbers, I think, take umbrage that, oh, Everest has become this zoo Mm -hmm. of clients who are paying $40,000, $50,000, $60,000 $40,000, $60,000 to climb the mountain, but who yeah. are we to judge them? Yeah. The point being is the experience has changed, mm-hmm. and so now it's not some lonely, grim struggle. It's a situation where you hope you don't get hung up on the fixed ropes behind a slow party because it could mm-hmm. cost you your life. So things have changed on Everest. The final remark I'll make about Everest is that the trek to Everest remains one of the great adventures. Hmm. Your grandmother could do it. Anybody could do it. Yeah. Everybody should do it. Because it's only 35 miles. A healthy person could do yeah. it in a day or two. The altitude considerations mean you have to go slowly, you have to acclimate. So you hmm. walk for three or four or five hours a day, and then you get to Dingboche and you spend a night or two, and then you do another half day. So that enforced downtime gives you time to savor. The landscape, the Himalaya. Yeah,
0: it's incredible.
1: And the culture.
0: Yeah. Nepal is my favorite country. I always say that. And that's on my list to get to Everest yeah. Base Camp. Everybody and should yeah. do it. Yeah.
1: And because it's so easy. Yeah. And it's got such a high payoff. Most people who do it, do it again. Hmm. And I rest my case.
0: So how about K2 compared to Everest? Is K2 mm-hmm. still a little bit more raw? It is,
1: but K two is equally dramatic. It's, yeah, the Karakoram is a great mountain range. The difference is, is that the Sherpa people live in the Khumbu, the way most people go to Everest, whereas the hike on the Baltoro Glacier to K two is an uninhabited moonscape,
0: uh-huh.
1: but beautiful.
0: Hmm.
1: Either is good.
0: Totally different. Yeah,
1: but equally invigorating. K two can be a little bit more of a mind bender just because you don't have the succor of the Sherpa people, mm-hmm. the monasteries, and the human interaction. Yeah. You know, it's just you and your trekking group and your guides. Hmm. But they're both great, great mountain treks.
0: What and where was the most memorable meal you've had while traveling?
1: I'm a total foodie. I'm a good chef. Huh. Wadi Rum, I was with some Bedouins. Mm-hmm. A guy named Abu Suleiman was a local Jordanian that I was hiking with and he made the most incredible dinner over a campfire. Well, not only over a campfire, he made lentil soup that you just wouldn't believe how delicious it was. And then he dug a hole in the sand and he started a fire and he baked bread in the sand. Mm -hmm. And then when it was ready, he just shook it off and there was no sand in it. It was beautiful. And then he made a rice and lamb dish. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he did it with these primitive, well, with no... Tools at all, almost, yeah, is amazing to me, and it was such a surprise. And then of course, nightfall happens in Arabian nights. There's a reason, yeah. People love them. The stars are bigger, brighter, closer than you've ever seen before. Mm-hmm. A memorable meal.
0: You hear everything mm-hmm. when it's so quiet out there. Did you notice that in the desert? It's yeah. just totally different.
1: Yeah, you. Yeah, you know, you've been to Wadi Rum. My request to my guys: we just let's get away from the tire track. Yeah. Yeah, and once you do that, the you're, tours. You're, you're in the wilds, but
0: it's beautiful, it's yeah.
1: beautiful
0: new. What was your, well, I, I already know the answer to this, I think, what was your most nerve-wracking experience on the road, and how could other travelers avoid it?
1: Actually, my most nerve-wracking experience, and of course, I'm not on the road,
0: mm-hmm.
1: was doing a climb of Mount Waddington mm. in British Columbia, mm. and it's super remote, and we got helicoptered in and spent a couple of weeks on the mountain. It's an area famous for bad fog, rain, hmm. bad conditions, and we got fogged in, weathered in, ran out of food. The helicopter guy couldn't come get us. We were surrounded by grizzly bears. There's no way to walk out, and it was a difficult psychological experience yeah. to keep it together. You knew that eventually, eventually the clouds would lift,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: you began to doubt that. Yeah, and and so that was probably the roughest psychological stressor that i've had eventually the weather cleared and our pilot mike king a beautiful guy came in in the jet ranger and picked us up but by then we hadn't eaten in days it was serious days days (laughs) we played hearts for the last cookie oh (laughs) no (laughs) and jim Jim won and i thought he would share but he didn't
0: no he ate the survival of the fittest yeah
1: right It, (laughs) it was grim it was it was grim but
0: wow what passport stamp still eludes you
1: oh there's many so many uh so many yes there is probably i'd have to say mongolia Mm
0: -hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: i I just haven't had the time and just hasn't aligned in the stars for me to get to mongolia but everyone speaks very highly of it i'd love to see the landscape there
0: yeah i would too actually there are some people there that are disappearing the nomadic herders and yeah that's a good one i that's on my list too what is your most cherished souvenir and why are you a souvenir guy
1: no, I'm not. I, I take no souvenirs. I just take back memory. Yeah. And there's no way that I could tell you what my best memory is unless it was the hour I spent at Shackleton's grave. We had made the Shackleton Crossing, and ever since I read the book about his disaster endurance, yeah, I'd been fascinated with his attempt to make a traverse across Antarctica Mm -hmm. and after we did that we stopped at Gritvik in this little whaling station on South Georgia Hmm. to say goodbye to the Marines who were stationed there after the Falklands War there's about half a dozen of them English Marines Mm -hmm. and my buddies all went to bag a nearby peak but I went back to the boat and got some scotch and and sat there on a rock next to Shackleton's grave and communed with the boss yeah I admire him for his nerves of steel and the way that he had to lead a group of men through a dark place and yeah. to emerge. As he put it, we've been through hell, not a man lost. And unlike Scott, everybody dies. Shackleton, yeah. nobody dies. Yeah. So that was a memorable souvenir for me, that moment.
0: I love that. What's the most interesting custom or tradition you discovered abroad, and did you bring it back home?
1: I think it's named Paul the Sherpa. Mm. Teach you to laugh at discomfort. Yeah, Doug Scott, the famous British climber I interviewed for my book *Hot Himalaya*, told me he said, "Peter, we learn more from the Sherpa than they ever learned from us." Mm-hmm. And on the face of it, it sounds nutty because you know we're the Western world and they're a world from a different century. And yet, nobody who's been to Nepal would argue with that. Mm-hmm. It's the Sherpa way. It's the the Buddhist way. It's yeah. everything's temporary don't worry, don't take it too seriously. And I think that's what I try to carry with me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I know what you mean by that. I I mean, I can't articulate the feeling of Nepal. You just have to go and you have to experience the landscape and the people. And it's just, there's something magical and spiritual about Nepal. So yeah, that's a good answer. What's your biggest piece of advice for aspiring travelers or adventurers, explorers?
1: Just go. Just go. Don't worry about it. Don't, puzzle over the problems or don't be concerned about what the consequences will be if you want to go you just have to go and you have to make it happen and do what you have to do yeah because if you feel that urge you've got to give into it
0: Mm -hmm. a lot of people talk themselves out of it though
1: it comes down to practicalities paying the rent and we're talking about your life here. You yeah. just can't worry about that, yeah. you know. Or I got to quit my job. Well, quit your job. <laughs> yeah. The first thing I did after my mountaineering accident was quit my job.
0: Huh.
1: Finally, you know, I had clarity. Yeah. This isn't what it's about. It's about living. So usually, if you follow your dream, things work out.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You can get into trouble, but you can usually get yourself out of it
0: and trouble is that's not necessarily troublesome is it i mean it's good stories if you survive it it's yeah. good stories and, and good lessons the there. yeah, yeah. Like, you can
1: get stuck in a scary place yeah you can make bad decisions and be in a place that puts yourself in jeopardy but the best decision is no matter how old we are in the end the only thing we regret are the things we didn't
0: absolutely do. Yeah. and that's
1: such a lesson that yeah. people have to remember
0: I love that. And what's the most profound lesson you've learned around the world?
1: We're all the same.
0: Yes. I say that all the time. I know it sounds cliche, but it's so true. It's cliche for a reason, no? Everywhere.
1: Yeah. We all, most of us just want to have a good time and be around other people and laugh and eat well and drink well. We're all the same. Now, there's some bad guys out there, apparently, who don't want that but everywhere I go, the Sami people of Arctic Sweden, Mm -hmm. these were the uh, culture that I was the least familiar with. And I just recognized everything immediately, just like we are. Everybody's just like we are, no matter where you go. Middle East, they're just like we are. Yeah. And so that's, we're just human beings and we're all human beings. Yeah. So all of these boundaries and religious differences we have to let those go and just remember that we're just people and we just want to have a good time
0: so what's next for you another book
1: i think so i think maybe a europe book okay you know i've been spending a lot of time in europe last year was wales and switzerland and now estonia and i think i'm probably gonna spend some serious time in europe and do some of the classic routes and some routes that maybe aren't so classic including a lot of the the backcountry trips that nobody knows about because they were behind the Iron
0: Curtain. Uh
1: Eastern Europe, Transylvania
0: um, has some really beautiful
1: uh, Urals, all Mm -hmm. of that. So I think that that's a place that would be educational.
0: Yeah. Good. Well, I'm looking forward to it. So we'll have to do this again when that happens. Good. I'll be happy to do it. All right. Thanks, Peter. I hope that Peter's passion for the great outdoors has inspired you to start exploring all the beauty that mother nature has to offer. I know that I'm going to start moving my climbing from the rock gym and out onto a cliff face. So be sure to follow along on Peter's next adventures at www.peterpotterfield.com or on Twitter at Classic Hikes. And until next time, get out there and set the world on fire.